We're not reading a resurrection account, which is very typical of a Sunday Easter. We're going to read about the first time Jesus mentions his resurrection in the Gospel of Mark. And the setting and the awkward moment that surrounds it is worth the look tonight. So that's where we're going. So Mark 8:22, we'll put it we'll end at verse 37. So I'm going to read through so we get the flavor of this narrative and then we'll um, go in to what the Lord has for us tonight. So Mark 8 verse 22. And they, Jesus' disciples, came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And when he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes, you know, you're blind, right? You're hearing this. And he spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see men, but they look like trees, walking trees. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Well, in verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ or the Messiah. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. In other words, they can't miss the plain sense of the way we understand it. But Peter did misunderstand. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. The same thing Jesus has done to demons. He's rebuked demons in Mark. He rebuked the storm on the sea in Mark. Now he rebukes Peter. Nice class to be in. He rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. But that is the great paradox, the backward thinking of Christianity You want to save your life and give it up. It doesn't make sense. 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return 
for his soul. What if I told you that there was a secret weapon that could reverse everything that has happened to you? So all of the pain, all of the hurts, all of the mean, evil things anyone has ever done to you, the secret weapon could reverse those. I would find a lot of courage in something like that, especially, especially in the face of death. Knowing that I had a secret weapon that could reverse whatever happens to me, that would not only give me comfort in the face of death, but it will give me courage to face death. I mean, what can possibly go wrong? I've got the secret weapon. Do your worst to me. And it's very possible that this is um, how Jesus was able to let the enemy do its worst to him because he had the secret weapon. It's the reason he was able to, in the Garden of Eden, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, excuse me, to say, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Do whatever you want with me. Because he had the secret weapon. And while on the cross and suffering anguish wrongfully from his enemies, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because he had the secret weapon. This secret weapon, it may, no, may not be a secret by now, is the resurrection. And what if I told you that you had this secret weapon made available to you to reverse the things that happened to you? I don't know about you, but I would begin practicing how to use the secret weapon so that when I need it, it works. I would want to make sure I know how to use the secret weapon. So yes, it gives me courage, but I need to practice it. Well, the resurrection is something that we usually look at. I'm going to, I'm going to walk through this. Three aspects of the resurrection from most common to least common And the first view of the resurrection, the first way we look at the resurrection, I grew up with this one every single Easter Sunday. It's that the resurrection proves that Jesus was who he said he was. Every single Easter Sunday morning, I felt like it was basically an apologetics course. Um, It was basically, we can prove that Jesus rose from the dead, like here's the proofs, you know, and so therefore it's a solid fact. And because the resurrection is a solid fact, Jesus as God's son is a solid fact. Now that's right and that's proper. Jesus rose from the dead and it gave us proof that he is who he said he is. He is the son of God. As Romans 1, 4 tells us that that was part of what the resurrection did is it announced that this is God's son. So the things he claimed, yep, they're valid. And one way to look at this is that on the cross, the Jews had their say about who Jesus is. Remember what they said? John 19. We have no king but Caesar. That's who we think he is. Crucify him. Worthless. The Romans had their say. The Gentile world had their say of who he is. Oh, he's just a common criminal worthy to be killed like any ordinary slave as an enemy of the state. Here he is crucified as an enemy of Caesar. That's what the Gentile world had to say about him. Just a nobody, the death of a slave. 
But at the resurrection, God finally got to have his say about who Jesus is. And as he comes out of the grave, it's God saying, you might think he's not your king and you might think he's just a common enemy of Caesar, but I see him as my son, as the hope of the world. And everything that he has done is valid. I am proud of him. The resurrection proves that Jesus is the son of God. Second, the resurrection promises to you and I that what has happened to Jesus as he comes out of the tomb will happen to us on the other side of the end of time. It's a promise as he comes out of the grave. It's that promise of, hey, all who follow me will also receive a new body like I have. They also will walk out of death and death won't have the final say on them anymore. They will live forever. So in some ways, Easter, as Jesus comes out of the tomb, it is like a preview for a movie you're very excited for. The previews are there, and you're like, I cannot wait to see this film. The preview is bringing something in the future back to our present time to say, this is what's coming up, and it's supposed to get you stoked. And as Jesus comes out of the tomb, it's a preview of things to come for those who follow him. And you can read about that in Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. How Jesus, we are waiting him from heaven to give us a body like his own, it says. So the resurrection proves to us that Jesus is the son of God. It second promises us the same kind of body and future eternal life that Jesus has. And third, the resurrection is something to be practiced Every day. And I think this is what we miss in our day to day, week to week practice as Christians. We meet on Sundays, and the church has always met on Sunday since Jesus rose from the dead because he rose from the dead on Sunday. The idea was that we're gathering and having a miniature Easter every single week of the year. That's why they met on Sundays. The resurrection was that important. And it was a community that said, we want to model the one who defeated death and has come to bring life. We want to model that in our gathering and mimicking the Easter Sunday week by week. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is something that we are supposed to practice on a relational basis, on a daily basis, on every single basis of our life. The resurrection is to be practiced. So with that, let's look a little bit deeper into our text here and see the practice that Mark in his gospel through Jesus is calling us to do we begin with this interesting narrative about jesus walking with his disciples nothing new there he's always walking somewhere but then there's this blind man who asks him to be healed and once again we're reading this without eyes to see really because like oh another episode we know what he's going to do he's going to heal the guy but mark is brilliant in the way that he frames the way that he recalls this event is that he, he, he brings up something very shocking. And if you're trying to prove Jesus as some magical miracle worker, this is a very bad example. Because it appears that Jesus fails. That Jesus doesn't quite get down the whole miracle process. So the blind man comes to him and Jesus spits on his eyes and says, Do you see anything? And he's like, Well, um, 
I see walking trees. Is that normal? Is that, is that what I'm supposed to be seeing right now? And you can imagine the embarrassment, right, of the disciples. Like, this is our miracle. What? He failed. Like, what, what do you mean Jesus couldn't heal this guy properly? So it's almost like Jesus has to say, ah, oh, darn, that trick didn't work. Let's try the next trick. And you almost like read this going, what is going on? Why does Jesus have to try to heal this guy two times? And what we realize as we step back and look at Jesus, you know, in the whole of the story is we realize very quickly that he, it isn't a lack of ability on Jesus's part. It isn't because he was unable to heal this guy. Rather, what we see is something Jesus did often in a different format. We often hear him speaking in parables. Yeah, he gives the stories and the, everyone's like, what does that mean? Wow, that's cool. Um, but now he does something different. He gives us an enacted parable. This is an, a parable that he's doing with his body, not with his words. So, in other words, there's this blind man. He tries to heal him one time, and the blind man kind of sees. And he needs that extra touch from Jesus, and then he fully sees. It says that he saw everything clearly. This is a parable that Jesus is enacting about the two ways that people view resurrection or view following Jesus. There are two different ways people see following Jesus. Um, The first way is the first healing attempt. There is a certain way in life in which people see the world through the lens of scarcity. In other words, there's never enough and I need to make sure that I get enough. So we think about ourselves and we put ourselves before others. And it's a big grab race about who can be the first, who can be the best, who can have the most power, who can have the most followers. It's a world of scarcity and I want to do everything I can to survive. So I'm clutching and grabbing and climbing. That's the view of scarcity. And in many ways, this is religion. At its best attempts is that religion tries to get us into a better place. It tries to help us to see, and it does a fairly good job. Religion opens the eyes of many people, but we don't quite see clearly yet, right? It hasn't, religion doesn't go far enough for us because often what religion is, is it's being established in a world of scarcity for people who are living in fear and trying to climb on top and make other people serve them. And often people use religion only to empower themselves, only to get more followers, only to get people to do things for them. We see it all the time, the abuse of religion. And religion is great to heal us, but it can't completely heal us. It's a partial healing And so in some ways, this is that warning of, okay, yes, we need Jesus, but don't just settle for this, like, kind of half Jesus thing. This world of scarcity where we have, okay, we have Jesus, but we need to continue to make sure we look powerful and we get people to do what we want and to like us. And this whole weird, wrong way of thinking. The second view is abundance and that's what we see when jesus heals this guy the second time he sees everything clearly there are those who are able to go one step past religion religions open their eyes halfway but then they're able to go one step past and they can see everything clearly 
that, wait a minute, this isn't a world of scarcity where we're all afraid and we're trying to grab what we can get and it turns into violence. This is a world of abundance. And we have a gracious father who's in charge of it and who's leading us. And there's no end to his supply and the generosity he gave by sending his own son. What more can we do but give our own stuff and our own selves to others? And we can constantly seek ways to serve other people and to help them. A totally different way of seeing. As religion can only heal you so far, this is resurrection seeing. This is what resurrection teaches us to see, is that there isn't a limit to what God can do. There isn't a limit to what God wants to give through us and to what God has given us. Because even in the face of death, God still said, that's not the end. There's still more for me to give. Here's the life of my son. This is seeing holy. Religion can heal us partially, but resurrection heals us fully. The idea, though, is that we have to be called into its practice. We need our eyes to be opened all the way so that we can begin to live not in scarcity, but in abundance. Not in fear, but in faith. Not in serve me, but I want to serve you. Not in put the crown on my head, but let me put the towel on your feet and wash them. Totally different way of seeing power in this life. That partially healed people are still using power, but the fully healed people are giving away power. So I've set up now the parable that Jesus is showing. It's going to now come, uh, it's going, Mark's going to show us this more in the passage that follows. So what we're going to see here is two characters represent these two views. The partially healed uh, view is represented by Peter. He sees, but he doesn't see all the way. The fully healed figure is Jesus. And so we're going to see this contrast between Jesus and Peter. So Jesus is walking with them again after that strange healing. And it says that he asks his disciples who people say that he is. And you can hear the disciples just rattling off what CNN said or Fox News said. And, you know, they're giving the reports that are out there. And Jesus says, that's great. I want to hear what you guys think. And I can imagine there was this kind of like, oh, we hate taking sides. (laughs) You know, we're we're happy to report what the social media is saying, but we don't really want to take our own stance And so the crickets chirp and the birds caw and the frogs croak. And then Peter speaks. And Peter is the courageous one who answers, you're the Messiah. And Jesus simply says, shh. So Peter, we see, has partial vision right he can see but it's like he sees men as trees he sees that jesus is the christ so we know he has some sight but then jesus begins to explain something further and he says in 31 okay great peter i'm the messiah i'm the christ But let me explain what that means. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer at the hands of the Gentiles. They're going to abuse me. They're going to beat me. I am going to be crucified. (coughs) And that's when we realize that Peter doesn't quite see all the way. 
Because that's when he pulls Jesus aside and says, wait a minute. That's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. My Messiah, my king we're waiting for, is supposed to come in and tell the Romans to get out of here and let us live our life. And here, that Messiah is going to come and he's going to sit on the throne and he's going to make all the nations come and serve him. And he's going to appoint me, Peter's thinking, to a special place of honor. So when Jesus starts saying, okay, I'm going to die, Peter's like, you have the completely wrong idea here. But Jesus' mind of what the Messiah looks like is not, here I am, everybody serve me, let's set the kingdom up, let's beat up our enemies. Jesus' view is very different. His view is, okay, I'm the king, I'm the Messiah, I'm going to come, and I am not going to beat up our enemies. I'm going to let them kill me. I am not going to ask everybody to serve me. I am going to take a towel and wash the feet of my disciples, even the one who's going to betray me. I am not going to seek revenge. I am going to say, Father, forgive them as I'm being killed on the cross. These are two completely different views of what the Messiah is supposed to be. Peter represents the view of the world, how most of us see power and what we want in life. And Jesus represents the kingdom of God and the complete weird backward way of thinking. And I look at our world and I hear the politics, you know, we're getting ready to vote soon for our (laughs) leader. And I hear, uh, you know, we Brussels, you know, it, it keeps coming up terrorist bombings and ISIS and the fear of East versus West. And, you know, we, we see our world, but what we are seeing all of this through the lens of, because we get our information from the news is we're seeing this from the Peter viewpoint. We're seeing this from the partially healed viewpoint. We're seeing this from the lens of scarcity and, oh no, what are we going to do? And we've got to fight. We've got to defend. We've got to put up walls and we got all these things, right? We got to, we, we make it about us against them. And I understand there's politics and there's certain ways nations need to try to survive. But the way we're looking at all this, is it not through the way of Peter's way of seeing things? Do we not see that we must fight and be the first and be the best? And we want to get rid of our enemies and it's very challenging, isn't it, that we hear, when we hear, when we hear the news and we think of our Christianity, all we're thinking about is the first part of what Jesus said the Messiah is coming to do. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And that's all we hear. And you can almost imagine that's all Peter heard. You must be what? Killed? And then he rebukes Jesus. But he, wait a minute, Jesus said one more thing. And after three days, rise again. It's as if Peter couldn't hear past the, you're going to die part. Because death was, no, that's not the way. We aren't servants, we're going to be rulers. And Jesus had a completely different view. Yes, Peter, yes, I'm going to die, but it's not going to end there. I'm going to rise again. So in other words, my backward way of doing things, it's going to lead to the thing you want, but it's not going to do it through beating people up. It's going to do it by letting them be served, even if it means I'm a sacrifice. So those are the two ways of seeing. Very interestingly, what all this boils down to is this. 
that when the man was halfway healed, it says that he saw men like trees. I've always wondered why trees. Then he was healed and saw everything clearly. Well, here's what we have is two kinds of people. When they look at Jesus, when they look at religion, when they look at Easter, we have those like Peter who only see trees. They only see the cross. Then we have those like Jesus who see past the cross and see resurrection. Peter only sees the cross. He only sees trees and he thinks that's the end. Death, cross, suffering, sacrifice. No way. Put up the army. Put up the military. I'm going to defend myself because that is not where I'm going. And this is the danger when religion only lets us see the cross is that the cross is a horrible message if there is no resurrection. And so Jesus represents the one who says, yes, I see the cross as a means of getting to resurrection. It's a means of getting there. It's the way to something bigger and better. And that's the person who sees clearly. I don't just see trees. I also see resurrection. So what we learn through Peter is that having the right answer is not always enough. What does the resurrection mean? What does Easter mean? What is its significance? Well, it means, and we have this great explanation, theologically sound and doctrinally correct about Jesus being the son of God and how he conquered death and your sins are forgiven. That's a great answer. Peter had a great answer too. You are the Christ. But in the next instant, he's being rebuked. And what I hear this saying is we can have the right answer about who Jesus is and about his resurrection, but the right answer is not always enough. Peter had the right answer, but he did not have the right practice. We must have the right practice. We can talk about resurrection and we can talk about the significance. But if it is not becoming a practice in our life, then it has lost all its power. The halfway healed man sees just the cross, but the holy healed man sees the cross and resurrection. And that man realizes I must practice resurrection by going with Jesus to the cross. That is how we practice resurrection. It isn't just something we say, yay, it proves that Jesus is worthy of my worship. It isn't just something either that says, yay, I'm going to wait until I get my resurrection body. It is something that we say right now, oh, Jesus did say, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Now, why did he say that? Because he answers in 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's why you need to take up your cross. The first line is Peter's way. Whoever would save his life will lose it. So Peter's like, I want to save my life. So he's going to do everything he can to protect himself and keep control and have power and keep all of his nice little things in order. But in the end, Jesus is saying, 
that way of life leads nowhere but death. But contrary, the second half of the verse, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's the Jesus way. Okay, so if I want to keep my life, what I realize I need to do is I actually need to give it away. See, Peter, scarcity. No, I got to keep it. I got to hold on. Jesus way, abundance, generosity. No, I got to give it away. I got to give it away. Why? Because he realizes that as I take up my cross and give myself away and die for people and serve them and surrender for them and sacrifice for them, that is resurrection. That's how you get. We will never experience resurrection We will never practice resurrection without a cross. There is no such thing. Jesus would not rise from the dead had he not been killed on a cross. It's very logical here. He's calling us into this way of living which fully heals us when we fully give ourselves away. It's the only way. We have to take up the cross. We have to lose our life to give it away to others. And in the process of giving that away, he fills us with resurrection power and the fulfilling eternal life that we're promised forever and ever. That's the practice. That's the experience. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It doesn't just mean follow Jesus and speaking like he speaks. So don't cuss and don't say mean things. It doesn't just mean follow Jesus and listening to only edifying music or follow Jesus and only watching movies. You would have Jesus sit next to you with that. It's all great. But following Jesus actually means go with them where he went. But we often pause at the hill of Calvary and say, thanks for doing that for me. Now he did, he paid for my sin. I couldn't do that, but he did also say, yes, I died for you, but I'm also asking you to die with me. But we stop at the hill and conveniently say, thank you. We follow him up to the cross, but few follow him through the cross. And that's why I think few are willing to have the same comfort in the face of death and the same courage to face death. Because we have not realized the power of our secret weapon because we have not been willing to practice it. Now, survey a room. Typical Sunday night crowd. Do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? Well, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. So yes, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I would say what? 90, maybe 95. I don't know. I'm throwing that out there. The huge majority of a Sunday night audience would say, yes, I believe in resurrection. But you know what? When I look at the church of America, I see the complete opposite of that stat. I see maybe 10% of the church actually believes in resurrection by the way they practice it. And here's the thing. We don't like to sacrifice and be generous and to help others and lay our our lives down and give up our time and make it about other people. We don't like to do that because deep down inside, we have severe doubts about what's going to happen to us because we live our lives like this is the only life. And that's the halfway healed person who sees just the cross. If that's it, then I want to live my life now before I get to the cross. But the fully healed person, okay, I know the cross is coming, but I also see resurrection. And so I can carelessly give myself away because I know that it doesn't end at the cross. I firmly and fully believe there's more. That person is the person who is giving up his life for Jesus. And you know, 
we we are very saddened by the attacks on Christians. That are, I heard about attacks in Pakistan. The Christians celebrating Easter were attacked. We, that's very tragic. We've, of course, seen the famous photos, or at least heard of the Christians put in orange jumpsuits and beheaded by ISIS. We see those things. And as Americans, we sit here with our half-healed vision, only looking across today. That's very tragic. Their life is taken from them very short. But you know what these people actually say, the people living in these situations, the National Geographic, as secular as they are, actually interviewed some of these families. And the responses of these families were astounding that they actually were saying the family members of those beheaded by ISIS were saying, we thank ISIS for giving us the opportunity to witness Jesus. Real Christian living rejoices in the persecution and the suffering that comes because they see that we aren't investing everything in this life. We have the full vision and realize that this is just a practice for us to give ourselves away that we can have more and more confidence that there truly is a life beyond this. I firmly believe that we doubt, severely doubt, and we have our fear of death and so we try to make this life everything because we really don't know. Like we, okay, I believe that like God has to like love me, but I'm, I'm still not sure what happens when I get there. We're almost, we are, we are great skeptics because we are very egocentric and that's what it comes down to. We're great skeptics because we're very egocentric. We, we wrap ourselves around ourselves so much that we're very unsure about what happens when I give myself away. But if we would just practice it, we wouldn't be skeptical anymore because we would experience what it actually feels like to give yourself away. I've never met anyone who regretted giving a week of their life on Skid Row, washing the feet of the homeless. I talked to teenagers who I did this with. None of them said, I wish I was watching American Idol. That was more rewarding than a week of doing whatever you want with whatever Netflix binging opportunity you have. Like, do you see the difference? A Peter life, a half-healed person says, oh my gosh, my time, Netflix and every show I need to get caught up on and whatever is your recreational thing, okay? Whatever that is. Like, that's the Peter way. But the Jesus way would say, well, there's a whole lot of people that I have an opportunity to help and that's more fulfilling than doing what I want to do. And you only know what I'm talking about if you've done it. And if you've done that, you have practiced resurrection. And you realize the fulfilling life that follows taking up the cross. I'm totally going out of limb when I say this, but uh, along with the we're skeptics because we're egocentrics. I really wonder if those who refuse to believe in God, like the new atheism movement or something that just scoffs at the idea of a resurrection. I really wonder if that's because they're so wrapped up in themselves. That's impossible to think of there being a life by giving yourself away. I just, I just wonder, I wonder, but I don't see the church as being much better. We live the Peter way. We're doing our religious thing. We have partial vision. And then we hear about what's going on in the world and we get violent and we react like Americans. And we're Americans. But we have to step back and say, is, is, that, is, is the American way the kingdom way? Or is there a better way of seeing? Is there a better way of living? Is there a better way of reacting? That's why I really question our belief about resurrection. We must get to this place where we practice it.
So what we see is that blindness, which obviously uh, Peter's just representative of all of Jesus's followers here. Um, Mark just picks on Peter because Peter and Mark wrote it together. And Mark had the pen because Peter was just a poor fisherman. So Mark got to say what he wanted to say ultimately. And Peter got the butt of the joke. Um, I don't, that's just the way I see it. <laughs> um, Peter becomes that symbol of all of us, really. It's nice to laugh at Peter, but we're him. We've got the right answer. Well, we only see halfway. Are we practicing the right answer? Are we doing what Jesus did? So I like how verse 34 says that he called the crowd to him with his disciples. And it's easy for us at this moment to say, well, yeah, duh, uh, blindness. Blindness is a worldly problem. You know, we sing to him, I once was lost, but now I see. Or someone was blind, but now I see. Uh, that's the part I'm thinking of. I'm like, of course, I see. I was blind, but now I see. I'm thinking, wait a minute. Jesus called the crowds, yes, the unbelievers, with his disciples, oh, his followers, and then told them, okay, this is how you actually live and practice resurrection. In other words, blindness is not just a worldly problem. It's a church problem. The thing is, we may see halfway. He just wants to see all the way. So he is calling all of us. Hey, are you blind? In other words, are you holding knowledge without experience? That's blindness. You're the Messiah, but I'm not even going to dare act like or live like the Messiah, taking up my cross and <coughs> following him. Knowledge without experience, knowledge without practice is blindness. So you might have the right answers, but it doesn't mean you see until you start walking the road, then you see. That's why the double healing. That's why it's a parable of what we need to get to. So with all of that said, uh, I want to read to you guys Matthew 19, verse 29. Matthew 19, 29 says this. Oh, by the way, the context. The rich young ruler. You remember him? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, you must be, have you kept all the commandments? He's like, I've kept all of them. Have you given away all your possessions to the poor? And then he walked away sad because he was rich and he couldn't give them all up. That's what it says. Um, then Peter pipes up. <laughs> Peter always talking for us. Uh, Peter pipes up and says to Jesus, well, hey, look, we gave up everything to follow you. Aren't we so cool? And Jesus answers him, and this is a verse that concerns us, Matthew 19, 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake. So in other words, anyone who's taken up their cross, anyone who's denied themselves, anyone who's had the outward focus of others and willing to give their stuff up because they don't live in scarcity, but they see a world of abundance. Those who have been living in my grace in that way, they will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. They will receive a hundredfold. Holy cow. This is essentially, uh, one of my friends put it this week earlier, and I thought it was brilliant. If someone said that you, if someone gave you a bank account in which for every dollar you put in, you got a hundred percent back. Who wouldn't put everything they have in that? Who wouldn't do that? But this is what Jesus is saying, that whatever you give up, you're going to receive a hundredfold. 
But it's only for the holy healed and opened eyed person, the Jesus way that sees the cross isn't the end. There's a resurrection. So I can give up because I see there will be the hundredfold return. Wow. Uh, correction. I said, anyways, um, I said like a hundred percent return. I think I meant a hundred time return. You know, it just, yeah, that's a lot bigger, right? <laughs> so, um, you guys, I think you guys got what I was saying. Um, that's what he's saying there. That's what we're applying here in Mark is this idea of, okay, so it's Easter. Let's get corny. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> But we live this way because we're, we, we have the, we, we only see trees, right? We only see the cross. We're like, okay, death is coming. So put all the eggs in this life. This is what matters. And that's the Peter way. That's the self-defense way. That's the self-seeking way. Serve me way. But Jesus is saying there isn't just one basket to put your eggs in. Actually, there's a really cool basket over there in each of the people around you. And if you put some of your eggs in those people, you're going to see that return to you times a hundred. So yes, it's financially wise not to put all your eggs in one basket, but it's spiritually expedient that we put our eggs in every basket around us and live for that. This is our secret weapon. It reverses every wrong ever done, every hardship we've gone through resurrection and if we practice this secret weapon well we're going to start to see the returns even now let us learn how to use it by taking up our cross and following jesus and seeing the life that comes when we live in that abundant fully healed eyes open way of living let's have not just the comfort in death but the courage to face death to confront it to say, ah, I can die for you, my friend, because I know that God gives me life every time I put myself last. Well, that's, by the way, how Matthew there, that reading ended. Whoever puts himself first will be last. Whoever puts himself last will be first. So happy Easter.